0: Welcome back to another episode of LSHTM Viral. My name's Naomi and I am joined today by my co-hosts, Amy and Carl. Hi, Amy.
1: Hi everyone, it's Amy Thomas here. Nice to be back.
0: And Carl.
2: Hi everyone, it's Carl Byrne here. Lovely to be back once again.
0: So this week, we are following on last week's episode that was discussing sustainable food systems that are also nutritious and this focuses on the private sector and industrialization and how we can get them involved in achieving a food system that's sustainable and nutritious. To start off with, have you guys tried plant-based alternatives?
2: I've tried an Impossible Burger.
0: Oh, who's, who's is that Burger King?
2: I don't know. Where I, <laughs> I can't remember where I tried it. Somewhere in America, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah,
1: I've I mean, I've tried a few different plant-based alternatives, um, but I'm always questioning whether you know whether they're good or not. You know, because they are processed
0: as well. What What do you guys think about the industrialization of the food systems and how the meat industry and these plant-based alternatives that are growing? how they compete with each other, what their roles are. Would you rather buy a processed plant-based alternative instead of meat from a farm?
2: Personally, me, I'd rather buy meat from a farm. Um, But I think that might have something to do with my background where I grew up on a pig farm.
0: With a few cows burping.
2: A few cows, a few sheep, and very sort of small holding. So, yeah, that's kind of my background. I've always sort of brought up thinking about, you know, using the whole animal if you have to, if you're going to eat it and not. You know, knowing where it comes from and knowing the whole circle of life, so to speak.
1: I have mixed feelings, I think, about this issue. I find it quite difficult to navigate at times, not only because there's sometimes quite conflicting information, but generally I just change how I feel. I think depending on, you know, um, you know what I've read or, or things I've come across.
0: Yeah, and that's really interesting because our guest today, who's from the private sector, talks about how they're trying to make a plant-based alternative for mass distribution that's also fortified with all the micro and macronutrients that one would traditionally expect to get from meat. So I think it, the industry's come a long way in trying to think about these things.
1: So where are you on that spectrum, Naomi?
0: Yeah, so I've, I've worked in these agricultural food systems, sort of think tank environments before and I've always butted heads with people outside that who promote vegan diet strictly because there's a lot of circumstances and environments in which a vegan diet is actually bad for the planet yeah. um so if you're in a dry lands pastoral environment it makes no sense for them to be eating courgettes rather than goat when they're raising goats and they can't raise courgettes. It's tricky because it's ethical. So if your personal ethics are against eating animals, that's one thing. But then within the context of planetary health, it's more about the ethics of the whole planet and how do we ensure that the impact on our
2: environment is limited within our diet. And as Alan mentioned that last week, there's there's way ups. No matter what you choose, there's always going to be a payoff. You can go completely vegan, but that's still going to have an impact somewhere along the line on the environment, just not, not as much as some other thing.
0: Yeah. And so what are your guys' thoughts on the role of the private sector in this? Because I think there's an inherent distrust of the private sector, especially for large-scale industrialization when it comes to things like saving the planet.
2: You're not going to be able to do this without the private sector. If it's just well-meaning people in universities and some governments going, you should do this, which even them, they're not doing it. But without the private sector pushing forward the ideas and actually bringing them to market, I don't think there's anything, there's not going to be any... um, Innovation. There's not going to be any innovation.
1: Yeah, I, I would have to have to agree. I think the private sector, what they have, you know, um, which is different to governments, is that they tend to work quick, more quickly, um, with these kind of things, so they can, as as Carl said, take something to market, um, and that, you know, in in turn will have will have a huge effect on the supply and demand and and the kind of economy and
0: food systems that we're in so first we're speaking to francesca harris who is working on her phd here at lshtm to start off friend can you tell us a little bit about it, the type of research that you do so my research
3: is around how the food we eat is linked to the environment and in particular i focus on how much water that we use when we produce our food and therefore how much water that we actually technically eat through our food consumption. And it's much bigger than we would realize. So the average individual in Europe will use about 3,000 litres of water to produce their food in just one day, which in the perspective of other household use is around 200 showers. So it's much greater than our household use. In my research in particular, I focus around India and how the issue of where we change our food or we
0: produce food with a lot of water leads to groundwater depletion. And the research group that you're part of at LSHTM, focuses on food systems sustainability more broadly and part of what they're looking into involves nutrition as it pertains to human health within those systems is that right yeah absolutely because i mean ultimately the planetary health goal is obviously not just in
3: terms of sustainability but also in terms of benefiting human health and we do tend to find that nutritious food particularly things like vegetables and pulses beans or lentils and things like that they tend to use less water when they're produced as opposed to animal-based products as we've discussed but also things like sugarcane. however it's not always the case and it is quite complicated because it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all issue we need to really understand how these relationships between water use, the farmer, the food system that they exist in, the consumers and how they're demanding certain foods, how that all works together. The case in the UK is not going to be the same as somewhere like India. We do try and understand it and definitely want to incorporate it, but it's important as well that farmers are not understood as just a clog that just makes food because they just do and that's how they exist. They're also people that have a family or and have a livelihood that they need. And so unfortunately it's not as simple to just say make these foods that are nutritious you have to also understand what factors are causing that farmer to be
0: producing the foods in the first place and it gets obviously a lot more complicated the deeper you look so in this episode we're exploring what role the private sector plays in achieving a sustainable and nutritious food system is this something you've come across or explored in your research previously It is difficult because as you've already highlighted,
3: the food industry is so vital in this piece of trying to improve sustainability of our food production and nutritiousness of our food production. We do tend to think about it from the farmer's perspective, and this obviously as well will be different depending on the size of the farm. And that's something which I think is quite an important factor in how we consider the private sector and how they are involved in sustainability the size of the farm or the size of the business has an implication to how they will be able to change and move towards perhaps a more sustainable system a large farm might be able to make small changes and because it's so large it's got sufficient profit coming from elsewhere whereas smaller farms have more risk if they're to make a change. So if they have got a family that are depending on that food to be produced, it's unlikely that that farmer will want to take a risk and produce something that's more sustainable, even if it has a benefit in the long term. When we think about our research in India, we understand that farmers' decisions around what crops they grow are often dependent on their experience, so what they've been used to growing over um, periods of time, but also the incentives that they get from governments. One of the things that happens in some states is that farmers are given very big subsidies for electricity. And the goal of that was to allow farmers to use that electricity to pump groundwater for irrigating crops. On the surface, that sounds excellent. The farmers are getting support for their food production. But because they're so good, these subsidies, there's no incentive from the farmers to actually then reduce that water use. When it comes to small and medium-sized businesses, farmers or other businesses, they also do need incentives from a wider public institution, whether that's the government or something else that could be incentivizing them to actually switch production because they have more risk and they have more to lose if they change something without that
0: support. In your experience then, is there enthusiasm and interest from the private sector in this? It, it really depends on what angle
3: that people are looking at because often you find that in you know in reports people are thinking big and looking forward and saying that they want you know big goals and have a future look outlook on that sustainability but I think when it comes to the day-to-day it's really difficult to get things to actually change and this is where in some ways COVID has actually caused people to really reflect on what's going on currently or what has been going on within the food system so in India the supply chains have been a major issue for getting food to consumers and obviously when covid happened these supply chains were massively disrupted and it really showed where there's a serious weak point within that food system as there was so much food being wasted on just not getting to consumers it wasn't able to leave the farm gate improving supply chains is a major piece of the puzzle in trying to improve the sustainability of food system because so much food is wasted in supply chains particularly in lower middle income countries something like covid disrupting that system and really showing where these major failings might or, or have happened can now actually encourage people to invest in those supply chains whether it's small medium businesses or large corporations that we already have a role to play there in India. It's difficult to know now COVID has happened and has obviously changed food systems around the world, how much action might sort of happen in the near future. Another part of that, of course, is that the priorities for those countries have changed. Clearly, the priority for the next year or two years is going to be focusing on the health systems in those places as we are in the UK. I know in the UK, there's been a lot of effort recently to try and understand, understand what a future food system could like look like in the uk and that's where some of our projects so the chefs project the sustainable and healthy food system project is working with stakeholders in the uk to try and understand this in those cases i think people are really trying to understand not just what that future vision is but how we'd actually get there. And there is a lot of interest in that coming from private sectors, as well as obviously consumers in the public. And the consumers are the customers of the private. So if the consumers are becoming interested in sustainability more, then that's obviously
0: going to push private companies into thinking about it too. And considering the historical trajectory of globalized food systems and monocropping, which has led sometimes to less diverse food production at the national level... Is this something that is being considered within academia when there's research being undertaken looking at sustainable nutritious food systems?
3: There's many different areas of research within that. So one is the domestic production side. And you're right that what we potentially done in some countries is inhibit the ability for those countries to produce their own nutritious diverse diets because as you say monocropping has occurred however from a different perspective on that part of the reason that those countries might have specialized in their production of a certain crop is because they might be really suited to producing that crop in a way that would use a lot less resources than other places so farmers have potentially developed an understanding of that crop and how it works what is suited for that Land and that environment. And so, actually, that in some cases will mean that crop demands less resource use than it would if it was grown in another country. And that has an implication for when we start thinking about sustainability of our global food system. Perhaps it isn't that we want countries to produce all of their own food because that might lead to more environmental impacts. It might be that we want trade policies that actually support food production that's made in a way that's really sustainable and is suited to those natural, environmental, climatic conditions that that country has it's difficult because it almost then starts to bring in a political argument and that we actually have very little understanding at the moment on how global food supply chains work we do it on a broader scale of country to country you know how much of a food product is moving through different ports but on sub-national levels we don't have particularly in lower middle income countries we have very little understanding part of our research has been trying to develop that understanding through looking at models but clearly what would be much better is if we just had the data itself and that is somewhere where I think private companies have a massive role that they can work with academia in order to provide that data so that we can better understand those global food supply chains we don't have to just get the data given to us for free or perhaps the data you know it doesn't have to just be published online because clearly that company has risk of being too transparent for its own profits but there are ways that this could be done for example the data could be purchased and that's something that we do for other data sources in our projects is that we use consumer purchasing data that has been purchased from a large company. That's one way I think that's quite a clear benefit for where private and research institutions can work together is by just sharing data.
0: To me, it sort of feels like there's always a bit of hesitation from academia when it comes to working with the private sector. So in an ideal world, how can this relationship work beyond sharing data? From my
3: perspective I understand that there's been a lot of cautiousness from nutrition community which is where my expertise sits there's a lot of nervousness around working with the private sector because let's say you did some research on a food product that had a certain nutrient in and you showed that that was beneficial for a population in a certain way and somehow you were linked either through perhaps getting some funding from that grant or that you'd been to a conference that they paid for you to speak at and you were linked to a company that sold that nutrient that could then be hugely detrimental to the credibility of all of your career and not just that not just that particular piece of research so i understand the nervousness but i think when you bring sustainability into it it becomes a much broader picture of actually there's this huge goal that we need to try and achieve and everyone has a role to play in that there isn't so much around a profit I mean, there is definitely some places a profit to be made, but it's more about the social responsibility of companies and everyone (laughs) to work, to achieve sustainability as a broader goal. One way that that can be done is through firstly, just as an academic researching and trying to understand the perspective of industry and industry I'm using as a broader term for anyone in the private sector. From the industry side, effort also needs to be made to understand the research and whether that's having dialogue set up. It is really important, but it has to be done in a way that everyone respects the other's goal and is also mutually beneficial.
0: And going back to the bigger picture a bit, what trajectory are we currently on then when it comes to the food system in the context of planetary health? There are many different
3: factors which will obviously determine where our food system is going, and clearly climate change, if that continues, if we continue on the path that we are at the moment, that will impact our food production because it means we can't produce food in certain places. Global availability of food to 2050 is set to decrease based on the fact that climate change will inhibit food production in certain regions. It's difficult because from a between country perspective too, some countries are going to potentially be winners and some are going to be losers. And then when you look even at a lower scale, some people are going to be winners and some people are going to be losers. We're not on the path at the moment for everyone to achieve planetary security or everyone to achieve nutrition security. Unless there are some big imagination and innovation improvements in how we actually function our food system, I think we do have to be prepared for huge disruptions to food security in the future. And clearly as well, the food
0: system and changing the food system is a big part of actually achieving climate goals. So what do we actually need to do then? How fast do we need to move? Who needs to be involved? How do we achieve this sustainable and nutritious food system together? Well, <laughs> it's that's a big question. And one that I'm not sure
3: I could answer in a simplistic and yet sufficiently balanced way. Because from my perspective, we all as individuals have a role to play. We are all consumers, we all eat three times a day. And so firstly, I think it would help if individuals took a a moment to consider what the impact of their choices are. Food waste to me seems like such an obvious place where we are failing at the moment. We're failing because we're wasting a third of all of the food globally. And there's no reason that that should happen apart from an inefficient supply chain or perhaps not having enough time and consideration for us to be considering what food we're buying and what food we're using and then obviously starting to consider how much food that we're eating that might be from animal origin and I'm not saying that everyone needs to eat a vegetarian or vegan diet but perhaps just a consideration of how much we're eating could help us understand how much we then need to reduce it individually and what that means what impact that could have on not only the planet's health but also our health as well and then from the broader system perspective there is so much research now being done around the world on how we can improve the sustainability of our food system which is excellent and that makes me feel quite hopeful that we will see changes in the near future but clearly the research is just the first or perhaps even middle piece of the puzzle because that research then needs to be taken up by government and also needs to influence businesses to act in a way that's more sustainable. We can hold businesses to account when they set targets and they say that they're going to try and achieve the SDGs and sustainability but it's just a piece that's published in their reports. We need to have a better uh, system to hold them account to make sure they are actually implementing action to achieve sustainability
0: for the next part of our episode we're going down under adam is a friend of mine who for the past year has been a research and development manager known as R&D at V2 which is an Australian startup looking to develop sustainable plant-based protein alternatives both domestically and internationally at a large scale hi adam hello Naomi. first can you tell me how did you end up working in this field
4: Prior to working for V2 here in Australia, I was working for Mars Chocolate in the UK in product development. And that was a global role looking at innovation within expanding markets like China and the US. And before I moved to the UK, I was working in Australia for Mars Food. So those were looking at uh, ready meals, sauces, those types of things for the Australian market. And, you know, this career really came from my interest in food as a kid my uh, grandma used to cook for me right so she was a tremendous cook I wasn't so great but I really saw the power of food how it brings people together it starts conversations it really is you know like the equalizer in all scenarios
0: I should add in this case it's true Adam and I met at a mutual friend's birthday at a pub in New Cross over dinner and within 30 seconds we're talking about local farmers markets and have been friends ever since And so this company, V2, why are you undertaking this type of work? And what types of considerations does the company have when it comes to climate change and planetary health?
4: V2 was created last year as a company to really address the existential crisis that we all face, which is we have a growing population, which is predicted to hit 10 billion people by 2050. The demand for protein to feed that growing population will continue to increase. And in order for us to meet that need for protein, you know, we need two planets for this one planet of people to be able to provide that need. This company was created to be able to provide quality protein to that growing population without having to always rely on traditional animal livestock sources for protein. The way that we're able to do that is by providing, again, high quality product at a price that people can afford. One of the biggest challenges that the industry faces is that the s- scalability of traditional animal sources means that it can be cost competitive. People are used to paying the price for meat. They enjoy meat. In order to provide them alternatives for protein, you need to A, be able to provide a solution that is tasty that meets their expectations. And people have really high expectations for flavor, color, taste, mouthfeel, all those types of things that I think people can underestimate. And the other way that you're able to then provide those high quality proteins to people is the price point that means that they can afford it. Alternative proteins shouldn't just be available for people that have the disposable income to be able to you know, afford new foods that are priced at twice the cost of meat. The the purpose of our company is to create a version two of meat. Again, as I was talking about, people being really particular in what they look for when it comes to meat and the type of uh, dynamics that it have when you eat meat, when you ingest it, that feeling that you have, you know, after you've eaten meat. Um, these are things that we've really looked at very carefully to understand why people eat what they eat. What what our product needs to be, how it needs to be designed to be able to meet that requirement from people. So this is a viable version two. It shouldn't be a compromise that people make in their uh, appetite for food just to eat plant-based. It should be that there's not really even a hurdle or a decision point that needs to sort of be climbed over.
0: So in terms of the actual product, this plant-based alternative you're developing, you keep mentioning protein. But what about other forms of nutrients? Is that a consideration when you're developing it?
4: So when when we talk protein, it's certainly not the end game in how we design products. So our starting point is the sustainability impact of protein. It is one macronutrient that makes up a larger product proposition. But again, it comes back to the drivers for sustainability. Our products, high quality plant-based protein means that we're able to deliver the equivalent protein content of a of its um, animal based version when we design the nutritional profile of our products our starting point is protein so if we're trying to match what a traditional beef burger for example presents to us we're going to match that protein content and quality and then from there we design the products to also meet the same nutritional contributions that beef would make you know to the diet from a macronutrient point of view in terms of the the overall energy contribution protein carbohydrate saturated fat fat we're determined to make an equivalent proposition because again if you think about all the ingredient components that contribute toward that overall nutritional profile those are all the things that make meat taste nice that gives it great mouth feel, that means that consumers will buy that and then want to buy it again one area where plant protein over delivers from a nutritional point of view is sodium. So in order for our product to taste as delicious as it does, and for the majority of our competitors' products within plant-based to taste as delicious as they do, our sodium content tends to be a bit higher than traditional animal products. This is an area that we, you know, consumers should be aware of. We do everything that we can to reduce it as much as we can. But again, we need to make it a tasty product One of the clear benefits of plant-based protein is that they will naturally bring a higher fiber content to the meal. So compared to a traditional animal-based products, we'll be able to contribute toward fiber intake, which as we know in the Western world, we probably should all be consuming a little bit more fiber than we normally do. And an area where I think we should be conscious of as well is looking at the micronutrient profile of meat. So things like iron, phosphorus, zinc, B3, B6, B12, all these tremendous micronutrients that exist in animal meat. We have a responsibility to make sure that those are also present in plant-based alternatives. We do use fortification. So we, we work with external suppliers to be able to, to develop a blend of fortified vitamins and minerals. I mean, it's one thing to fortify a product. It's another thing to ensure that those fortified micronutrients are the most bioavailable forms that they can be as well. So work that we're doing at the moment with the um, CSIRO, which is one of our key scientific partners is to ensure that the, the micronutrient and macronutrient profile of our products is bioavailable for our consumers. I mean, this also brings me on to a really interesting point, which is when we look at sustainability the scale of production and when we look at nutrition, uh, planetary health, there's more than just the Western market. I think the Western market gets a really strong share of voice because we're loud and we've got cash, but there's clear developing markets that have a requirement for high quality food safe protein their nutritional requirements can be slightly different from um, Western markets. So it's not a one size fits all. It's not a one conversation for the Western world. And the rest of the developing markets can just sort of work it out themselves or receive what we're doing. Scalable markets is more than just who can afford traditionally expensive plant-based alternatives. It's how do we scale up for developing markets? How do we create a platform for affordable nutrition? But again, not only is facing into this existential crisis of providing sustainable protein, but also delivering nutrition to people in the right way that is suitable um, for their specific requirements.
0: So when we're considering the sustainable production of plant-based alternatives, when it comes to scalability, what considerations does the private sector need to have around the impact of this type of industrialization on the environment and the corollaries on human health?
4: It can be quite a job, especially if you're sourcing globally, like we do. One of the focuses of our company is to shorten our supply chain as much as possible. So where we can create uh, an Australian product sourced from Australia, that's, that's our aim. And that's what we're doing in a global market. However, you invariably end up sourcing from all sorts of markets. So having a really good relationship with your supplier and auditing them well, and this all forms part of an approved supplier program. So wherever, you're sourcing from, you have a responsibility to not only make sure that your raw materials are safe, but also understand what their quality processes are, what good good agricultural practice looks like, what good manufacturing process looks like. So scalability, when we're looking at global supply chains is definitely important, but obviously it also has an impact on the environment. So when we're thinking about our own scalability, There's probably two important considerations I'll talk about now. The first of which is again, sourcing raw materials and growing raw materials. So for our particular product, we use soy. Uh, The soy, so where we're sourcing soy from becomes very important. Obviously we wouldn't want to source soy from markets where there's considerable unchecked uh, deforestation. Again, having a very clear understanding of where your farmers are based, what land are they using? The other area of consideration is certainly the footprint of manufacturing. So yes, we're growing and sourcing, but we're also manufacturing ourselves. And these manufacturing facilities take space, take money, and take raw material to create. We can also modularize how we manufacture these products too. So unlocking the existing supply chain in existing countries where we sell our products is really important.
0: And so we discussed with Fran and you've mentioned that this is a collaborative effort and there's many different types of players in trying to create the sustainable nutritious food system that aligns with planetary health goals. So as a private sector company, do you just work within the company or are there other stakeholders that you're working with? And if so, who are they?
4: Again, really good question, Naomi. I mean, our stakeholders are quite broad as as we are a startup, we've got a very broad suite of stakeholders that are, you know, really invested in the success of our company. And these, these include scientific bodies like the um, CSIRO in Australia, who is a lead um, scientific research institute. They've been core to our collaboration um, from, you know, from the inception of the company. And again, when we're looking at planetary health, there's, a wealth of knowledge and experience with the scientists that work for the CSIRO, you know, that help inform our position when it comes to the nutrition of our product, when it comes to the sustainability choices we're making around raw material sourcing um, or consumer behavior. These stakeholders are a key to our company. We also partner heavily with universities in Australia as well to lean on the expertise. We're also a key member of uh, Food Frontiers. This is a smaller think tank that has been established in Australia for a few years now, and they're really looking at the sustainability efforts of companies when they're looking at alternative proteins. So not only the marketing to consumers, but also how we collaborate you know, with the government and policy on things like naming conventions for products, how we have a more collaborative approach to consumer messaging.
0: And Adam, where do you see the future of food systems going? Can the industrialization of plant-based products help us balance our emissions in the context of climate change?
4: I feel the traditional discussion has always been a more polarizing one, as in it's either large scale and it's bad or it's small scale local community and it's good. This framework of that understanding really is driven, I suppose, by uh, Western countries that have money you know to invest in both and you've got consumers with access to resources that mean that they're able you know they they have the luxury of being able to make the choice between those two i personally think that the future of food systems uses both models you need scalability to drive affordability, the success of our deployment of sustainable alternative proteins in Western countries, where we're starting now, we're starting in Australia. The marker of success is that this is a system that you can pick up and then place in in, uh, more developing countries. You need scalability to be able to drive the affordability of the products and ensure that people have access to this alternative. And that's sort of where the plant-based industry sort of sits at the moment. It's it's at a very high price point, because again, the technology that goes into making a fantastic plant-based protein product is new, it's expensive, and that cost often gets passed on to the consumer. We can't operate like this. So you need scalability to drive the affordability. However, you also need a regionalized approach to things like human nutrition. We've got, you know, different countries, um, different uh, population health markers that we need to be understanding when we deploy. The end state of success for me in my role is being able to say, how do we research and develop and deploy food systems at a scalable level that can also respond to consumer needs in a very niche way within regions?
0: And overall, as an R&D manager in the private sector, you're thinking about the actual creation and delivery of a sustainable and nutritious food system and sustainable and nutritious food products what is your takeaway message for our audience
4: we need to understand each other and choices again i think it's it sounds a bit lofty but even down to the very tangible examples of products as in plant-based versus animal vegan versus flexitarian all these distinctions are important and we should be respectful of why each person is making these decisions these don't need to come at the cost of success in other areas Sustainability in human health isn't a black and white response, it really is uh, collaboration across industry, collaboration across consumer preference as well. We need, to, we need to be able to work with what's already there in order to drive affordable nutrition.
0: Okay, one last question, and this is for both Adam and Fran. Are you hopeful? Can we actually get to a future where everyone, including those yet to be born, has access to nutritious and sustainable food,
4: I think it's easy to feel like it's not possible. I personally am hopeful. I see success. It's a long, it's a long path. It really is, but the only way we get there is open dialogue. And this sort of comes back to my takeaway message for research and development in the industry: it's to say that we're not going to progress unless we're willing to talk to each other. It's not a competition. I mean it it is right it's the food industry there is competition there but in terms of the greater good and the, the bigger goals that we're after there needs to be collaboration and open dialogue between industry to find a path forward
0: What do you think Fran are you hopeful Yes I am hopeful I
3: am because I think I see the change I see the interest And perhaps that's in my own social circles. And I realise that that's not necessarily representative of everyone. But I do see people are interested and people do want a more sustainable world and particularly younger generations. I mean, there's so much enthusiasm and hope and action that's happening within younger generations that if we are able to act and we are able to harness that, I think there is hope for us achieving planetary health. But I do think also we can't just leave it up to someone else to sort. We're all part of this. Individually, we can all take small actions and we can't leave it up to the responsibility of someone else. So whether it's, purchasing fish that has been caught in a responsible manner or it's eating a few bit less (laughs) of red meat each month or it's trying to reduce your food waste all of these things just individually can make a big difference and when consumers do start to show that they're interested in sustainability it also becomes of interest to bigger companies to actually then support that and yeah we need to kind of create this global movement of it's our planet and if we don't care then who knows what the planet will be in the future
0: thank you to both of our guests who have joined us today and as always thank you to our listeners for tuning in and subscribing to another episode of alice htm viral stay tuned for next week's episode where we will begin to explore the impact of environmental and climate change on the spread of infectious disease. Until then, stay safe and informed.